1: Welcome to a special impeachment update edition of Words Matter. Joe, it's been a month since Speaker Pelosi announced the House impeachment inquiry. The polls have consistently shown a growing percentage of voters in favor of impeachment and removal of President Trump. A lot's happened in the last four weeks, but has anything really changed?
0: Actually, Katie, I think a lot has changed. First, the House, under the leadership of Adam Schiff, who's coordinating the depositions and hearings, have really unearthed, I think, a lot of information. I think we only know a little bit of it because they only put a little bit of the transcripts out or the opening statements of each of the people who go in to testify. Just the fact that there's people from the administration breaking ranks and defying the White House says a lot. And a lot of them are career Foreign Service people, and they go in without an ax to grind, and are going in and telling the truth and the whole truth. So I think we're getting a much fuller sense, or at least the House uh, committees are getting a much fuller sense of what happened and, more importantly, who else was involved. Because you know, as you're trying to build a case, the more people that you can uh, specify their involvement, the more people you can talk to, the more you get a full accounting of what really happened. So I think the committee has moved the ball incredibly far in just four weeks' time.
1: So last week in our rare use of the White House briefing room, your old stomping grounds, we watched acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney admit that an investigation by Ukraine into the 2016 election was a condition of the Trump administration releasing U.S. military aid. And the White House then tried unsuccessfully to walk that admission back. How did Mulvaney's admission hurt the White House effort to slow down this impeachment train?
0: Well, first off, I think we've added a new word to the dictionary, which is unwalkbackable. Uh, <laughs> it was absolutely unwalkbackable, and uh, his efforts to do it just tarnished his reputation. I
1: like that unwalkbackable.
0: So, so I want to start first with a point of privilege. It's hard to do what people do in the briefing room. You don't just walk in there arrogantly and say, I'm going to tell you what's what and then walk out triumphantly.
1: Unless you're Josh Lyman in the second season of The West Wing and he got in trouble for that.
0: Exactly. He walked in there arrogantly and got his ass handed to him. It was was a great episode. And I don't know who was more uncomfortable, the actor or Mick Mulvaney, when they were done with the performance. But they were both dismal performances. It underlines for me, once again, how important it is to have a professional in there – Briefing on a regular basis because you don't have all of this pressure building up for any one briefing where every reporter in the room feels like they're going to make their career with the next question. And I actually thought the reporters were pretty restrained and and kept giving him opportunities to walk back in real time what he had said. And he was not going to. It was clear to me that – and we'll talk about the substance of Doral uh, in a bit, I'm sure – But it was clear to me what they were trying to do was bury that news in an otherwise terrible news day for them and just have that slide by.
1: Right. So the purpose of that press briefing and the use of the briefing room uh, by Mulvaney was to announce next year's G7 meeting would be held at the Trump property in Miami. Now, by Saturday night, the White House changed course on that decision, uh, but the damage had been done. So how do these seemingly unrelated political missteps play into the impeachment calculus?
0: Well, the Doral announcement was a kind of amateur mistake that somehow that they could slip this one past everyone and they could slip it past people in the briefing room who they didn't have much respect for their intelligence. Mulvaney learned the very hard way that, again, it's hard to do business in that room and they don't have anyone who can. And that's a a big problem. Let's take the two things and separate them. The idea that the president using the G7 to promote and make money at one of his resorts is exactly what the founders were, were talking about with the emoluments clause. Right. I mean, it just exactly, which is they didn't want people to use and abuse the office uh, to make money. And the temptation is so great that they wrote that into the Constitution. And the idea that Trump didn't know that this would be a problem is crazy. I think in his mind has just gotten away with so much. He figured I'll ride this one out and they'll forget about it like they've forgotten about so many things. I'll create chaos over here and they'll all come running to that. The Mulvaney performance, though, on Ukraine is unbelievably damaging uh, to the White House and to Republicans on Capitol Hill. They were holding on to this idea that they could continue to spend, that there was no quid pro quo because –
1: The party line.
0: Because Trump didn't use the words or he was vague. None of that's true. But in politics, you sometimes mold whatever you have and do the best you can. And the best they could muster was there was no formal quid pro quo, therefore no criminal or abusive behavior. And they were just going to repeat it over and over again. And the president keeps saying there was no quid pro quo when he can pronounce it. And then the chief of staff comes in and acknowledges there is. I mean, just openly and as clear as he could, and then tells us all to get over it. And we do this all the time. It has shattered the foundation of the president's personal defense, and then more importantly, the president's defense in the Senate should impeachment articles get to the Senate. All they have left now, and this is probably where they should have started, I mean, Political Communications 101, Crisis Communications 101 says, work back from the worst possible outcome. And develop your communication plan around that so that you don't have to constantly be changing. And what they should have done from the beginning is argue that, yeah, the president made a mistake here. And he should have acknowledged that he made a mistake by leaving this impression, but this doesn't rise to the level of removing the president. Because they've made so many passionate arguments before this one, that will not ring true, I don't believe, uh, with anyone. And Republicans have had it. They just don't have any more room to defend the president. And I think they're telling him that.
1: Bloomberg had an article saying that Chris Christie and former acting head of DOJ Matt Whitaker were on a short list to replace Mulvaney. Do you think that he'll be out in short order?
0: I don't think he will, actually. Conventional wisdom would tell you that, you know, he's he's dead man walking and it's just a matter of time and lining it up. Uh, conventional wisdom just doesn't apply to, to this White House. You really have to think about it like a semi-crazy person, which the president is, and think, how does he view this? And I think he views this through a very narrow prism. Uh, the first and foremost is he doesn't want a chief of staff. He wants someone he can push around. Mick Mulvaney is now more push-aroundable, if, as long as we're adding phrases uh, to the dictionary. And he doesn't want Mick Mulvaney up on the hill testifying. A little uh, noticed comment in that press briefing, and I think ultimately the most important comment, was when Mulvaney made very clear that everything he did on Ukraine – remember, Mulvaney is the one who actually held the funding. It's the former head of OMB. He knew the mechanism to hold it. Everything he did on Ukraine, he did at the direction of the president of the United States. It's mm, a good point. You normally have staff who work hard to insulate the president from jeopardy, whether it be legal or mostly political. It's not generally legal. This White House seems to want to throw the president under the bus at every turn. And I think they've realized that he will do it to them. If loyalty is supposed to go two ways, there is no loyalty in this White House. But Mulvaney didn't need to do that. He did not need to say – nobody asked him or nobody was pressing him on who told him. Executive privilege gives him the ability to say to anyone, I'm not going to talk about my deliberations with the president. He doesn't have to talk about that. He wanted people to know that if he did anything, it was at the direction of the president and he wasn't going to jail like Bob Haldeman.
1: Mm, That's a good point. All right. So let's talk about Syria – I want to get into that a little bit. It has now been two weeks since the phone call between President Trump and Turkish President Erdogan, after which the White House announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. So this caused another rarity in Washington, a near unanimous bipartisan negative reaction on Capitol Hill. And it also cleared the way for a Turkish slaughter of the Kurds in northern Syria and international condemnation. You and Max Boot, just talked about that this week, but I wanted to get your take on how the politics of what can only be described as a foreign policy disaster play into impeachment.
0: Well, this in and of itself is a foreign policy disaster. I mean, Max, if anyone hasn't listened to the episode, they should go back because he really does explain it as clearly as I've ever heard it. What our stake was, what our geopolitical interests were, what our national security interests were in Syria in in very stark terms, and we walked away from all of that. But I don't want to dwell on that. Max says it better than I ever can. On the politics of it, I actually think Syria is the most impactful piece of this political jigsaw puzzle. You can't impeach a president because he makes a foreign policy mistake. The Constitution gives him the absolute right as commander-in-chief to set our foreign policy. So it's not like you can move an article of impeachment on pulling our troops from Syria. But what he's done here is he has galvanized Republicans to worry about what he will do next and what he will do if he finishes this term and perhaps gets another term. And for all of their spinelessness, I would say the majority of them still are patriotic Americans who are concerned about where we're going and have been concerned privately about Trump since the day he was elected. And while Syria on paper has nothing to do with impeachment and has nothing to do with Ukraine and quid pro quo and Russia and Mueller report and all of that, it has an impact on how Republicans are looking at Trump and how much they're worried about him. And I think Syria is a little bit of a wedge within the Republican Party that is opening some eyes to – This is on us if he takes this country down a dangerous and catastrophic road. It won't be on the Democrats. It will be on us. And then in politics, it is always self-interest, which dictates people's reactions and people's actions. And I believe that when the history books are written and Donald Trump is impeached and maybe impeached and removed, some smart historians are really going to get Republicans to open up about how... His decision to withdraw looks like surrender. Now, as as you see the troops leaving, having food and rocks thrown at them by Kurdish population, that that was a breaking point for Republicans. I'm not sure they even realize it yet, but I think you can't overestimate the significance of that mistake because it has a huge bearing on our future. And again, while I think most Republicans on Capitol Hill— are willing to swallow the things that Trump has done and that are in the rearview mirror, I don't know that they're willing to give him a blank check going forward. And that's what I think you're seeing playing out with some of the fractures. And Charlie Dent, the former Republican congressman from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was on television this week talking about the dam is about to break. I don't know if I'm that pessimistic from Trump's point of view, but the water is beginning to push on that dam.
1: Let's talk about the process of how this impeachment inquiry has played out so far. Almost all of the inquiry has been held behind closed doors, and that's given Republicans this talking point that this process is not transparent and it's secret. I know you were in favor of not doing most hearings publicly when the inquiry first started, but do you still think that's the right approach?
0: I do, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why this process is being taken so seriously, and I think that's one of the reasons why the public is beginning to move. And it's a little counterintuitive. I mean, I, right. think, I think there were a lot of people who said if you put on these big hearings and they're on live TV, everyone will go for impeachment, when in fact – this is why I wrote this in my New York Times op-ed – what would be seen on TV was a political circus, What people are not seeing and if so, in fact, are seeing is a very serious, deliberate process that has the future of the country at stake rather than who can get on television that afternoon and who has the soundbite of the day. So I think being behind closed doors is politically the right way for all the reasons that I articulated in my piece. Secondly, on the substance of it, it's a little absurd, the argument the Republicans are making. And by the way, this is not the argument they made in 1998. Right. In 1998, they made just the opposite argument, which is we're not removing the president. We're just indicting the president. Now, Katie, you're a lawyer, so I'm going to put this back on you. Some days. Yes, some days. Can you uh, remember any big cases that were litigated where the – Defense lawyers got to come into the grand jury right. and raise objections. Can you remember any grand juries that were televised? Can you remember any depositions that were made available to the public before the actual civil trial or, or criminal trial uh, began? No. This is The American legal system is based on the investigators gather as much information they can, and if they feel like they have enough information— they will indict that person or, in government terms, issue a very negative report. And then that person is allowed to defend themselves. That's what a trial is about. And I can't tell you, it made me sick hearing it every day from Republicans in 98 saying, oh, this is not the trial. You don't get fairness here. You get fairness in the Senate. So both politically, I think it's the right thing to do this in the form they're doing it. Political arguments If it's a matter of a story that it's one day, it can be totally detached from reality and the truth. For it to be durable, it has to have some connection to to reality, and this one doesn't. Anyone who does not work at Fox News as a journalist doesn't buy this.
1: Mm, Journalist. I don't know about that title for some of those folks. But let me ask you, this formal impeachment inquiry vote, it's clearly not legally necessary, but do you think it would be politically helpful?
0: You can make the argument that it takes a talking point away from Republicans, but this is all about politics. And Nancy Pelosi doesn't need my advice, but if for some strange reason she called me and asked for my advice, I'd say take the vote if Trump promises in writing to cooperate and to (laughs) from this point forward honor any subpoena. Or any document request again, accepting something that has uh, a just use of executive privilege, not a not a specious claim of executive privilege. But this is about politics, so get something for what you're doing. Again, I don't feel like the shifting explanations from Republicans are working very well. I also don't feel like we talked about at the beginning that there's there is a continuing surge among the public. To, for impeachment and removal. I think there was a surge when all of this information on Ukraine came out, and it has kind of calmed down. I think of the 45% of Americans who are not for impeachment, I'd say 30% of them agreed that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they wouldn't care. In fact, they, they would cheer Trump at some silly rally someplace in America. The 15% are waiting to see what the House comes up with. They're keeping an open mind. They don't necessarily like the continuous partisan bickering. It's another reason why doing this behind closed doors is, is I think, useful for Democrats. So I think we're at one of those points where everyone's saying, okay, let's see what you got. Now, it will be interesting to see polls this week, if there are any, because Mulvaney is a significant player in this. His admission is significant. That everything the president said about this is not true based on someone who was in the room, the chief of staff, the most partisan person who was in the room, doesn't even agree with the president. So you may see some movement there. But this is still very much up in the air and from a political standpoint, winnable by either side. As I've said for a long time, the Democrats have a much stronger hand. But if you want to use the poker metaphor, you've got to play the hand because the weaker hand often wins. And because someone overplays their hand or there are a lot of reasons why if the Republicans could figure this out, they could come out OK. They have not shown any sign they have, that they figured it out.
1: All right. So let's end where we started with a, with a straight up and down. After a month, is Donald Trump any closer to being impeached and removed from office than he was four weeks ago?
0: Well – that's a straight up and down question, but I'm going to give you a long answer. So there you go. It's, I'm going to and use, I'm the lawyer. Yeah, the and I'm the lawyer. Let me defer answering that question, and then I'll, at the end of this, I will. I think the single most significant thing about what's gone on in the last four weeks, and it's happened since Mulvaney's comments, is the power dynamic in Washington has shifted. Donald Trump has succeeded, when I put that in air quotes here, in dominating the Republican power through intimidation and a connection with voters that many Republicans don't have, the sort of Trump economic populism that got him elected. And he's been able to keep Republicans in line uh, because they needed him more than he needed them. That dynamic has very subtly but fundamentally changed. If you take Doral and you take Syria – Uh, Post Mulvaney, Republicans on the Hill, particularly in the Senate, have realized all of a sudden they've got power that they didn't think they have. Donald Trump now needs them more than they need him. Donald Trump needs 34 of the Republican senators to acquit him to stay in office. And it feels like the Republicans have just figured out that they've got this power. Now, whether they'll vote to remove him or not is an open question. I'm still dubious. But I think – before Mulvaney's comments and before in the well, really before the impeachment inquiry started and really changed the dynamic of public opinion, I don't think Trump would have backed down on Doral. I think he would have done what he always does, which is assume that the press will move on, that he'll take a week, two weeks, three weeks of bad press, and then he'll do exactly what he wants. I think you're now seeing a very weakened Donald Trump who is looking and is being told you can't treat Republican senators that way. You can't keep doing this stuff or they will turn on you. And that changes everything in Washington. I was thinking this morning back to 1998 and it changed the dynamic for us. We went from being President Clinton who got a lot of stuff done by by not needing to – be beholden to the far left of the Democratic Party because he could pull Republicans. He could always count on Republicans, some Republicans to vote with him except for the budget bill right out of the gate. But when impeachment took full swing, we knew that, right, that Democrats in the Senate held the power. And now we, we didn't have the ability to go and pick up five or ten Republican senators to get some trade bill passed or something that was in the middle and would, you, need, you could draw from both parties. We couldn't afford to lose a senator because when you lose a senator, that becomes two senators and it becomes four senators. And the next thing you know, you're worrying about your library, not the country. You're out of office. So I think it's really significant – that people recognize that shift. So now, I'll get back to the original question. Is it more likely he's impeached and removed than four weeks ago? It is certainly more likely he will be impeached. I think there's no question in my mind that the Democrats could make the case today. But I think they have more work to do. They want to know exactly how many people are involved and build the best case they can on Ukraine. But I also think – Because Republicans will eventually figure out the best argument is, yes, he was wrong. I think he shouldn't have done that and I want to punish him for that. But it's not impeachable. It's not removal from office. I think they need to build a broader case that this is – it isn't Ukraine and the abuse of power. It's about a pattern of abuse of power and they'll need to have an article on emoluments. And Doral will be center stage on that. They need to have uh, an article on obstruction, not just of Congress, but obstruction of justice at the Department of Justice, which is the Mueller chapter. And they're going to need to put all of this together, and they're going to need to then make a public case for it through, uh, I would think, a handful of hearings and then have multiple articles of impeachment to make the case to the public that this isn't an isolated incident. This isn't the president just screwing up once this is the president who has abused his office since day one and will continue abusing his office until the end. So I think it's much you know, much more likely. I think we're beginning to see the possibility that senators might break. If the odds were 100% to zero four weeks ago, maybe it's 90% to 10% now that they won't vote to remove him. But that's 10% movement, and we haven't seen much yet. So I think it's significant. Let me finish by saying that central to the argument that we heard. I'm going to hearken back to the debates with Philippe uh, Rhinus. One of the things that Philippe was right about was if we move to impeach him, it will put some constraints on the president and his behavior. In reverse, if we don't move to impeach him, he will be emboldened. And this is an area where my argument falls apart. And if we had the debate again with Philippe, I would just throw in the towel and surrender. It did embolden him. It emboldened him to move forward with Ukraine the day after Mueller's testimony. That's when that call took place. And now that we're four weeks into impeachment – you're seeing a president who is constrained. All of a sudden, there's a there's a guardrail there, and it's politics. Uh, it's not the Constitution. It's not any one senator. It is his political survival. And again, I think Doral may end up being a footnote, but it'll be an important footnote because it's when we watched Trump incredibly weakened in front of our eyes. That that climb down took 24 hours. The, the Trump that we got used to would have held on to that for weeks and may have been convinced to climb down, but not that quickly and not that comprehensively. So going back to the first question, a lot has changed. Can I predict that he'll be removed from office by the Senate as opposed to voters? No, but I sure wouldn't look away and think this whole thing is decided.
1: All right, Joe. Well, as always, it's good to have your thoughts on this. And thanks for joining us for this special impeachment update. Until next week, to be continued.
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.